This is the human side of healthcare, where we explore all aspects of today's ever-changing healthcare environment. Brought to you by the Dallas-Fort Worth Hospital Council and featuring CEO Stephen Love with co-host Thomas Miller. Now, let's make healthcare human again. Welcome to the human side of healthcare. Delighted you're with us today. And you know, this is the human side of healthcare. Our hospitals do so much for the community. They do community outreach. So we decided, let's talk with Angela Morris, Senior Director, and she handles community relations at Parkland Health and Hospital System. Angela, welcome to the show. Thank you, Steve. It's good to be here. You know, for our listeners out there, they hear a lot of titles at hospitals, but can you explain what is a community relations department? You know what? Um, community relations department is really a bridge between the organization and the community. We are the conduit of Parkland's message, but at the same time, we are a partner in the community. You know, we are a servant of the community. So it is understanding at a grassroots level what's going on, seeing how we can address it and see how we can influence the community through programming and just talking with people on a daily basis. So that's how I would describe our department. You know, since you're this conduit, let me kind of unpack this a little bit for our listeners. Prior to the pandemic, how did you connect with the community and who in the community did you connect with? We do a lot in terms of getting our experts, our staff into the community to talk about a number of things, you know, from clinical care to healthcare careers, you name it, we will get them out there. So through speaking, through providing services and education at health fairs in the community. So we're talking about blood pressure checks, blood glucose, you know, you're talking about mammograms you know, screening mammograms in the community and just education across diabetes, hypertension, mental health. And so we will be out there in the community connecting with people through those programs. And then we have other departments, you know, they're out in the community dealing with maternal mortality, infant mortality. So providing that space, being able to be in person. You know, a lot of the communities you reach are the medically underserved. I know you mentioned health fairs, but do you have like mobile units that go in and do diagnostic tests to help these underserved communities? Well, you know, we have our mobile mammography service where on a scheduled basis, we will identify locations in the neighborhoods, especially those neighborhoods that have have shown themselves to have late diagnoses of breast cancer. So we're trying to reach those communities and give preventative information, but also the importance of getting your screening mammograms. So we do have those mobile units, but we deploy a team out in the community. And where we're starting to go is basically have these standing partnerships with uh, stakeholders in the organization and have a routine where we're providing medical services at those locations. So it's just getting further into the community, but we also have advisory boards, you know, of those stakeholders to always have ongoing communications with people of the community to understand. Now let's go to 2020 
and COVID-19 mm-hmm. reared its ugly head. And what did it do? It prevented you from doing health fairs. It prevented you from physically, in many cases, going into the community. How did you deal with that? You know, it goes back to what never has has left. You know, we just become more convenient. It's picking up the phone and and talking with people, you know, going back to the landline per se, you know, where you are communicating through that way, you know, definitely partnering up with our digital communications. So speaking to the community through our social media channels as well. Uh, Also partnering with marketing where they are doing direct mailing. Everyone doesn't have access to Wi-Fi or the sort of data range, you know, to get a clear communications from that standpoint. So we had to switch up, but still virtual still doing speaking engagements, still talking to the community, working with coalitions, you know, in the community to understand what we can can do, setting up walk-up testing sites, setting up drive-through, you know, testing sites, setting up pop-up vaccination clinics. So still doing as much as we can, but making sure that we're safe for both the community and our employees as well. You know, to help our listeners really understand when you reach into the community and have good community relations, you mentioned things such as hypertension, mental mm-hmm. illness, diabetes, you know, the things we think of in healthcare. But can you expand a little bit so our listeners know what you're doing to assist with housing, transportation, all the things that impact health? Well, you know, um, speaking from an influencer standpoint, you know, we have our wheelhouse, you know, where we're in the community providing those services, right? You know, so that's where we have our programming through our community health needs assessment in 2019. You know, it basically showed the landscape of the community, you know, what are the disparities from health, from geographical disparities, you know, from transportation, Um, There are food deserts in the community. So that's where we had to develop an implementation strategy. How do we get further into the community? So we have initiatives and staff and resources that are focusing on those efforts on the ground, you know, getting out there, increasing pediatric, you know, screening when it comes to mental health, partnering, you know, with organizations, you know, when it comes to addressing pediatric asthma in the community, you know, doing at-risk screenings, providing education, but then enrolling them into a text enrollment program. So it's those avenues that we are setting up programming in the community to address that. But we have a partnership with DART. So how can we connect with DART to, you know, really showcase, hey, this is where you can maybe change some policies. This is where you might can change some operations. So feeding information to them so they can make decisions about what they're looking to do to address those transportation barriers. So that's really the essence of our work in the community from both of those standpoints. So when needed, you bring in partners such as the Dallas Area Rapid Transport to help transportation needs, or maybe you even work with people on housing. So it's not just healthcare related. It looks at the underserved, if I'm correct, and you look at some of those social drivers of health. Absolutely. We are not meant to do this alone at all. You know, you have 
those that you have named, but also grassroots efforts that are also happening. So it is working with the community. It is a community collaborative is, is truly what it is because all of us are after the same thing, a quality of life, no matter from any lens that you have. But health is part of that backbone of having a person be able to live out their day to day. So we have to be in this together. We can't do it in, in silos. So that's the essence. And we are talking about the human side of healthcare this afternoon with Angela Morris from Parkland Health and Hospital System. And when we come back, how you can participate and be involved next on the human side of healthcare. This is the human side of healthcare, where we feature healthcare's hottest topics and what our North Texas area hospitals are doing to make healthcare human again. Welcome back. We're talking about one of the most important aspects of what hospitals do in a community programs and systems that help people live healthier lives. But how do you determine where to begin, even? Well, that's the topic of our next question. Steve? You know, you've referenced the community health needs assessment to help our listeners understand this is really an assessment that you do in conjunction with the county and others to assess some of the needs that need to be addressed. And I'm sure one of the questions our listeners would have, do the underserved communities themselves have input into that needs assessment? You have to. You have to because they're living it out, you know, day to day. They are our patients. Um, There are our visitors. They are families of people that we serve. They are everyday residents of Dallas County. So, you know, what we attempt to do is do various categories, right? You know, we have our frontline staff input. We have our patients input. And then we have stakeholder input, you know, your nonprofits, you know, your informal influencers in the community, your faith leaders, you know, your business owners. Who are these individuals that we can connect with throughout the county? And then ask them a few questions. It's really open-ended. We're really here to listen And once you hear from the community and you line that up with data, you know, information that you're getting, it paints the picture and it definitely informs you of the decisions that need to be made as an organization. So it is the North Star. You know, Angela, full disclosure, I've known you a number of years. You're very passionate (laughs) about what you do. But I want our listeners to hear something and I'm going to put you on the spot. Share Uh some stories I'll share something that you've heard, not only from the people you've helped, but your partners about this good work you're doing in the community. You know, honestly, uh, people are grateful. You know, people are honest, you know, with where your shortcomings may be. But that's important to listen, right? You know, to, to understand and see what changes we can make. But people appreciate the work that we that we do in the community because you know you're helping a child to be able to go to school healthy and learn and understand and and grow up you know you're helping a community be able to be self-sufficient so the stories that we hear it is knowing that you've served it's knowing that you've done well it's knowing that you have helped this mother, this father, this family, to be able to live out their lives and not have to worry about their health. 
that's a blessing, right? And so that is what we're about. Those are the stories that you hear. You know, it pushes us along, you know, because, you know, this is hard work, you know, and we really want to give our best as an organization, you know, so that encourages us to know that we're doing well. At the same time, it's a mutual benefit. It helps us become greater at what we do when we know we're doing the right thing and going in the right direction. You know, I think one of the things that you said, Angela, in answering one of the questions that this truly is an initiative of community collaboration. And together, as we look not only at the underserved communities, but healthcare in general, we work through all the areas of chronic illness in a collaborative fashion. Angela, this is Thomas. Question here, because we're listening to these incredible programs that you are involved in and help facilitate in so many ways. And yet, for the common person in Dallas, it almost seems like it would be out there, something that they can't get their hands on. Why, in your opinion, is what we're talking about so important and why people all over the Metroplex should be vested in? The individuals that we serve are the pillars of the community. They're the people that have the businesses running. They have the community running. So in terms of going to the grocery stores and going to the dry cleaners, going to these different businesses, their health is what's keeping a convenience going for people in the community. So it's absolutely important, you know, for there to be a concern, you know, about what is the health and wellness of a community that is adjacent to where they live. So that's what I was thinking about, which is where Parkland is really looking to position itself to be an economic driver in the community, you know, where it is making sure that people in the community know how to bid on business that we're looking for. It is about people who are employed, you know, at Parkland and including those people who are providing a service. It is about how we can work, you know, with the community to help build up a skill set in the community. It is about increasing the minimum wage, you know, on positions in the community. It is about working with the school district and community colleges in terms of education for people who want to get into the healthcare field, regardless of what role they want to play. So when you talk about the overall work of Parkland in the community, we're trying to keep the economy going as well, you know, making sure people are healthy so they can go to work and provide the services that we need as a society. That's what I think. You know, I don't know when this happened, But somewhere along our lifetimes, all of our lifetimes, you can't pull into any city in this country, really, without, if you drive around for any length of time, to see the impact of health care on that community. There are hospital campuses. There are medical offices surrounding them. There are ancillary businesses that support them, all the way down to the sandwich shop and the dry cleaners that are built in that neighborhood just because there's a hospital there, right? Because you can sell a lot of sandwiches around a hospital. Yeah. And healthcare has become the pillar of our communities economically. And because Parkland is 
publicly funded, it's very important that you guys have this public give back, right? I agree. You know, the thing is, is that it is, you know, it kind of goes back to the question where Parkland is community. There are lives that we directly impact and there are lives that we indirectly impact. You know, at the end of the day, one third of our property taxes within our budget comes from Dallas County property uh, taxpayers, including me. And so it is important to get the benefit of what you are already investing, you know, and so that is where, to your point, talking about healthcare being the backbone, you know, of this community is because we are. We interact with, with individuals that receive a service from Parkland every day in our lives. You know, when we're going out, when we're, when we're leaving work, when we're going home, when we are, you know, walking and maybe going to a coffee shop or going anywhere, going to a grocery store. As we said earlier, you're interacting with people who receive care from Parkland. And so they keep our lives going. They keep our lives, you know, working. And so that's what we're here to do, to give that public benefit and return that back to the community. That is awesome. I don't know if you have this or not, but if somebody is touched by this and they would like to know more, they'd like to get involved, or even they go, wow, I had no idea. And you know what? I want to support this effort. Volunteer, mm-hmm. become aware. How, what would they do? What's their next step? So you know what, there's two, there's two avenues. So they can contact uh, the Parkland Community Relations Department. So that's Parkland Community Relations at phhs.org or look on our website and you'll also get additional information about um, our department. Um, so that's where we'll open up those opportunities. But on the second side, if you want to give a financial donation, you know, you can connect with our Parkland Foundation um, as well. And they will, you know, introduce a number of initiatives that Parkland is doing, you know, in the community. And, you know, you may want to give a monetary gift so you can connect with our Parkland Foundation. So those are two avenues that people can get involved in whatever shape or fashion. You know, Steve, I think this is uh, an incredible emphasis on just how important these public health care entities are in our community and something that people would never in a million years think about if they hadn't have heard something like what we just talked about. Oh, absolutely. Uh, all hospitals give back to the community, the public hospitals, all of our hospitals, and many have programs where they do outreach uh, to help people with chronic illness. Uh, it's fascinating and Angela, we can't thank you enough. What a great mission and a great service. We've been talking with Angela Morris, the Senior Director of Community Relations at Parkland Health and Hospital System. Thank you so much, Angela, for shining such a bright light on the needs of our community. And Angela's entire interview is on our podcast, The Human Side of Healthcare, both on audio and on YouTube. Now, speaking of the needs of our community, one of them is, unfortunately, domestic violence. Maybe you have been affected or know someone who has. We're going to unpack that next when we come back on the human side of healthcare. care. 
Welcome back to The Human Side of Healthcare, where we explore how to take better care of your health so you can live a happier, healthier life. With DFW Hospital Council CEO, Stephen Love, along with Thomas Miller. Welcome to The Human Side of Healthcare. Delighted you're with us today. Today, we're going to talk about a topic that really has impacted many people, not only throughout the nation, but especially here in North Texas, and it's domestic violence. And this is so important that we're going to look at it from two perspectives. First, from Cindy Burnett. She is the SANE Program Director at Texas Health Resources, and SANE stands for Sexual Assault Nurse Examiners. This is a special program with specially trained people like Cindy that is implemented in many of our hospitals around the Metroplex. And then also in the next segment, some thoughts and insights from Shayla Camacho from Parkland Health and Hospital System. Cindy, welcome back to the show. Oh, thank you guys for having me. You know, domestic violence has certainly been a topic of concern for many years, and it seems to have increased during the COVID-19 pandemic. Can you share with us any data or information related to the numbers and any trends that you have seen? Yeah, and as we know, kind of data is kind of behind the times to get actual numbers. But even our numbers, you know, statistics that we got from 2020, um, for the state of Texas even, there was a total of 228 domestic violence-related homicides in Texas alone. That was an increase of 23% from the previous year. Um, actually, Dallas County came in second with a total of 21 deaths in the year 2020, and Tarrant County came in third um, with 19 deaths. We were only preceded by the area, the Houston area. I know that all agencies in Texas have dealt with abuse of that deal with abuse of some kind, both adult and child. They really saw a distinct rise in the numbers that they saw. Um, in fact, Safe Haven of Tarrant County reported that their hotline calls rose 50% since the pandemic has started. You know, and we know that although research has begun on how COVID has affected our families, we know when stress within a family increases, so does the likelihood of violence. Because abuse, it, it's really about power and control. Abusers, they've been able to use COVID to really to their advantage. The pandemic has made it easier than ever for abuse, abusers to isolate and control their victims because with, you know, they've had little interaction with the outside world. Um, so the person being abused also has fewer opportunities as well to ask for help. If the abused person um, has a chance to reach help, there are even fewer and fewer resources available right now due to constraints of the pandemic. Um, with nowhere safe to go, it just seems like um, these individuals were just staying at home and not leaving. You know, domestic violence many times means visits to the emergency room. Has your team seen a rise in visits across your health system? And what is your viewpoint of the overall picture in the North Texas region uh, related to domestic violence? At the beginning of the pandemic, it seems like there was that lull that people just were not coming forward and coming um, to seek medical care. Now that we've opened back up and, you know, we've really been, you know, even advertising on TV, you know, people not to delay healthcare visits, we're really beginning to see a lot more. 
in 2020, they had said that domestic violence was up 25%, you know, and I would really expect that to even grow as time goes on. That although the Texas Council of Family Violence reported that domestic violence increased 25% um, in 2020, it was strange that our law enforcement agencies were actually seeing a decrease in the number of, number of calls that they responded to. You know, when you look at statistics and you look at data, sometimes you have to just think there's a stigma associated with family violence. Do you think there's an underreporting of numbers and the situation is even worse than what we thought? I think there's definitely an underreporting. Um, just like whenever I was mentioning the statistics about the fatalities, um, I actually work with one of the fatality review boards in Tarrant County, and they were um, actually all of this, the 17 deaths that we saw in Tarrant County, not one of them had entered the system through the hospital or even through any kind of advocacy agency. So basically that abuse had went unreported. And, and I think it, there's, there's a lot of reasons why, um, it's very complex why reason that victims don't come forward. Um, really because domestic violence is about control. These victims may feel like they have no support outside the home or maybe they even rationalize the abuser's behavior. Um, they feel that to stay in the relationship may be what is best for the children, or they may just truly not know that there are resources out there to help them. But I really think the major, the major reason is fear. Abusers may have threatened them or even their children. So leaving doesn't always mean safety for victims of domestic violence. And in fact, that's probably um, the most dangerous time for them. We just know that domestic violence related to homicides almost always occur when a victim has left or is planning to leave that relationship. You know, when we think in terms of domestic violence, are we referring to adult against adult, adult against child, all of the above? Can you explain how you view domestic violence? Sure. Domestic violence can be all of those things, and it really does not even have to be physical violence. People can be, have, have be violated, you know, emotionally as well. But I think we always see it as intimate partner, whether that's husband, wife, boyfriend, girlfriend, you know, or, or somebody's partner. But it can also trickle down to children um, and also our elderly. We see a lot of elder abuse even from their own families or their caregivers. You know, if you stop and think, a couple of years ago, the United Nations warned, now that we're entering a pandemic, there's also a concern of a shadow pandemic. How do you define a shadow pandemic? And explain to our listeners, in your viewpoint, what was meant by that statement? You know, I think COVID-19 just wrecked havoc, you know, on our world for the past year and a half and, and really still is. Um, during this time, our focus changed. We, all of our health come outcomes were related to vaccine development, distribution, education, um, all of our newsfeed. All we hear, you know, is about how many positive cases, how many people lost their lives to COVID. Yes, that is happening and it's still happening and it's very important, but it was almost like we had blinders on. We were distracted to just seeing what was right in front of us. And one of those things happened to be the rise in domestic violence. It was out there. It's still out there. It's always been out there. Um, but 
these people just couldn't come forward or even though the numbers were rising we were shadowed you know by covid and so that's really what they mean by the shadow pandemic it's it's there and it's rising it's just that our focus and the world's focus has been somewhere else you know cindy during covid 19 we know that we've tried to stop the spread of the infection but let me ask you this In your training as a sexual assault nurse examiner, you've explained to us how many times you not just communicate verbally with, say, the victim, you watch body language, you watch other things. Has the fact that people are wearing masks when you're trying to communicate with them, has that hidden some of those emotions that sometimes would help you in the treatment? You know, it it may have a little, but I think that for those of us that do this job, we're very in tune with not only what the person is saying, but are they making eye contact with me? Um, Are there tears in their eyes, you know, right now? Um, What is their tone of voice? You know, are are they very meek and mild or are they agitated? And also somebody's body language, Um, you know, are their arms crossed? Are they in the fetal position? There's just so much more to just what's under that mask. And then the good thing is, is that, you know, we're healthcare professionals. It's okay if I remove somebody's mask for a minute, um, because I'm going to be properly geared to assess that, whether it's to actually, you know, act like I'm going to assess um, their mouth or um, I just want to see the whole picture of what they look like. And then, of course, I'm going to put their, their mask back on. But there's just so many, so many keys that we can see just in general with somebody's body language, other than if they're smiling or frowning. Well, let me ask you this then. Has the pandemic caused you and your team to think of innovative approaches or techniques to connect with patients? And if the answer is yes, can you give some examples? Sure. You know, all of our hospitals, you know, are allowing limited visitors we did have to get a little innovated, you know, especially since um, these individuals, they, they need that support system there with them. And because we weren't allowing families in, and sometimes we weren't even allowing advocates in, you know, to be at the bedside, we had to get a little creative, you know, and kind of to stay in touch with that outside world. And what we did is that we got iPads. We keep an iPad in each one of our um, rooms that we use. And that iPad has allowed us to have that faith, to let the person that we're treating have that face-to-face contact with, whether it's a family member that, that's their support system. But I could also get them intact with the local crisis centers, and they could have that face-to-face interaction and be able to talk about maybe what resources are there for them um, and, and really get them started on their way. And that was, even though that's still not ideal, you know, it's so much better. Sometimes you just need to hold somebody's hand, you know, but at least we still had that connection. This is Cindy Burnett. She's the SANE Program Director at Texas Health Resources. We're talking about domestic violence. If you would like to hear this interview with Cindy in its entirety, check out our podcast, The Human Side of Healthcare. It's on all the major audio podcast players and is also on YouTube. One of the biggest reasons that people don't reach out when they're in time of crisis or need is they are simply afraid that their perpetrator will find out and then it will only become worse. When we come back, Cindy is going to address that very important question on the human side of healthcare. 
covering the healthcare topics that matter most to North Texas. This is the human side of healthcare with DFW Hospital Council CEO Stephen Love, along with Thomas Miller. Welcome back. We're talking about a very important topic that affects a lot of people in North Texas, a surprisingly large number of people. We're continuing our conversation about domestic violence with one of the people in our hospital systems that faces this every single day, Cindy Burnett. She's the sexual assault nurse examiner director for Texas Health Resources. You can also catch this entire interview on our podcast and our YouTube channel. You know, for people that are listening that maybe have been subjected to domestic violence or they currently feel they're being controlled, what should they do? I think I just want everybody to know that there's resources out there. You know, please reach out to somebody, even if you're not sure what to do. There's people that can help. There's all kinds of organizations um, even across North Texas, there's, you know, Safe Haven of Tarrant County, One Safe Place, Genesis Women's Shelter, um, all of these places. They all have 24-hour hotlines. The only bad thing is that some of these hotlines may be different, you know, considering what agency you're calling. So whenever I give advice, I like to tell people just to call the National Domestic Violence Hotline number. Um, and that number is one 800 799-7233. And even though you may be connected with somebody across the state or maybe even on the other side of our country, um, they, they have a database that connects them with resources in their area. They also have a great feature. Um, they have a text line. You know, for many people, maybe it's dangerous if you're, if somebody can hear you talk on the phone, or maybe you just don't have that voice yet in you to be able to verbally tell somebody what's going on with you. So they have a text line and you just text the word start, S-T-A-R-T, to the number 88788. And a crisis worker that's specially trained actually texts back. So let's make sure we've got that, Cindy. It's start text to 88788. And then what happens? And that text will go straight to a crisis worker at um, the National Domestic Violence Center. And they will text back and just carry on a conversation, evaluate the situation, and maybe even be able to make a safety plan there via text. You know, Cindy, I know you deal with people all the time. They are afraid that the perpetrator is going to find out what's going on. How do you instill in them that what you're doing is completely confidential? We always make that confidentiality statement with them and ensure them that if they're of age, if they're an adult, that we are not going to call the police, um, that we want to sit down and we want to make a plan with them to assist them in leaving the situation that they're in and do it in a safe way. Because today may not be the day. Um, They may have kids that are still at home. They may need to get resources together. But we try to really put in that safety plan for them. What do you need to get away? Is it uh, monetary value? Is it birth certificates for your children? Clothing for your children? What are the basic needs that you're going to need? If they call a hotline or something like that, they don't even have to give a name. So, Cindy, I know that generally men are implicated in domestic violence. 
but I'm sure you see females violent with males, females violent with females, all of the above. We do. Any relationship, no matter if that's a friendship or a a romantic relationship or a marriage, um, there's that ability for violence. And we do see a lot, again, we see a lot of partners, a lot of married partners or, you know, that dating relationship, but we also have a lot of same-sex partners and it can even be overbearing friendships and stuff that can um, perpetrate on another person. Abuse is all about power and control. It, it has nothing to do with um, the sex of the person and that fact. It's the fact of one person taking wants to control what another person is doing. You know, we've covered this before, but I think it's worth repeating. Can you explain to them the universal sign language for help? Sure. A lot of us are, and a lot of people across North Texas have really been connected to TikTok and YouTube and other social media. And because of that, uh, the Canadian Women's Foundation put out a campaign of a hand signal that people could do if they are in trouble, they need help, um, but cannot actually speak up and ask for it. Say they're with their abuser and they're in the grocery store. Maybe they're on a FaceTime call with some family or friends. But that hand signal is, is like putting your hand out like you're telling somebody to stop. And then you fold your thumb over your palm and then wrap your four fingers down over that thumb. And that, that is the sign that they need help. This has been Cindy Burnett, the SANE Program Director at Texas Health Resources. Always valued information. And we're going to shine a dual light on this topic with Shayla Camacho, who is the Public Health Educator of Victim Intervention Program at Parkland Health and Hospital System. We had Shayla on back in February, and her comments are equally relevant to this conversation today. And Shayla, we've been talking about this being an area and an issue of control, people wanting to maintain or obtain control over another. So Shayla, in light of that, where then is that very thin line between manipulation that we humans are very good at often where it crosses and even though maybe nothing physical has happened, yet is now domestic violence? Oh, wow. That's a great question. And I think like most things in life, it's on a spectrum. So we, we, we're on that spectrum of relationship, whether it's like really healthy that what we see and we want to embody to that kind of gray area, which is what a lot of, which a lot of the abusive relationship is, is in that gray area of, is it toxic? Is it unhealthy? And then towards the end, which is just extreme, like I'm going to be killed by this person if I don't get out. And so something to really look out for is at the end of the day, the actions that you're choosing for yourself, is it because you're walking on eggshells? Is it because you're worried of how that other person will react to your choices? Is that what we're doing, what we're doing? And that's when we need to realize that we may be in an abusive relationship if I say yes to that. Right. I'm not going to wear this because it's going to trigger my partner. I'm not going to be loud or be funny because they've told me in the car to be quiet before we got out to join this party. So certain behaviors like that. Am I changing who I am to appease this other person because of retaliation or what could happen to me? I know you hear often words like I lost myself in that relationship after a couple breaks up. Easy to do, isn't it? Absolutely. Yes. Especially because 
abusive relationships. There's the cycle of the honeymoon phase. Everything's really good and really happy. And then it's these minor adjustments that we're making that is, since it's so subtle, by the time I realize what's going on, you're like, wow. Because an abusive relationship, it's not like they're going to hurt you on the first date. We would know to call the police. We would know to warn our friends and family, don't go out with this person. They're very meticulous and manipulative in their behavior. And they know that, unfortunately. You know, when it isn't physical, like nothing's being thrown across the room. There are no bruises. It's not physical. It's emotional. Why do people stay in those relationships? Because words truly have power over anybody. And I can give you a very simple example. It's when people want to apply for it, for example, for a job. And you're like, oh, should I apply? And you're like, no, I don't have the credentials, so I'm not going to do it. And so you miss out on that opportunity. No one told you you couldn't do it. You told yourself that it wasn't possible. And it's just for a job application. So imagine when you've been told with words that I love you, I love you, I love you. Your cooking is amazing. I love what, what, you're, what you made for me. And then all of a sudden you make a dish. And then they're like, what happened to you? This dish was horrible. It tasted the worst. Are you going to believe that person? Yeah, because they've always complimented that, that plate that I've made. And so maybe I did do something wrong when you really hadn't. That's the power of words and gaslighting and manipulation. They, they do carry a lot of weight, unfortunately. This is a topic that we will keep in the forefront here at the Human Side of Healthcare because knowledge is power. We've been listening to both Cindy Burnett from Texas Health Resources and Shayla Camacho here from Parkland Health and Hospital System. Thanks to you both. This entire interview is also available on our audio and YouTube podcasts. Steve? Thank you for listening. And remember, if you are a victim, text START to 88788. Please join us next Sunday for the Human Side of Healthcare.